0: Chapter Seventeen Parts Eight and Nine of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Seventeen Parts Eight and Nine Section 8. Conquest of Egypt. Egypt was now, absolutely, cut off from Persia. The gate to that sequestered land was open, and Alexander had only to march in. The Egyptians had not the vigor to offer any national resistance to the Greek invader, and Mazakes, the Persian satrap, seeing Phoenicia and Syria in Alexander's power, the Macedonian navy in the roadstead of Pelusium, and no help at hand, thought only of making his submission and winning the conqueror's grace. Sending his fleet up the Pelusaic branch of the Nile to meet him at Memphis, Alexander journeyed thither by way of Heliopolis. In the capital of the pharaohs, where he was probably proclaimed king, he sacrificed to Apis and the other native gods, and thereby won the good will of the people, who contrasted his piety with the bigotry of the Persian monarch Ochus, who had killed the sacred bull. But while the new king showed that he would treat the native religion and customs with respect, he also made it clear that Greek civilization was now to pour into the exclusive regions of the Nile. He held athletic games and a poetical contest at Memphis, and the most famous artists from Greece came to take part in it. From Memphis he sailed down the river to Canopus, and took a step which, if he had never performed any other exploit in his life, would have made his name memorable forever. He chose the ground, east of Rhiochus, between Lake Mariotis and the sea, as the site of a new city, over against the island of Pharos, famous in Homeric song, and soon to become more famous still, as the place of the first lighthouse, one of the seven wonders of the world. The king is said to have himself traced out the ground plan of Alexandria, the marketplace, and the circuit of the walls, the sanctuary of Isis, and the temples of the Hellenic gods. He joined the mainland with the island by a causeway of seven stades, nearly a mile in length, and thus formed two harbors. The subsequent history of Alexandria, which has held its position as a port for more than two thousand years, proves that its founder had a true eye in choosing the place of the most famous of his new cities. The greatness of the place as a mart of the world far surpassed any purposes or hopes that Alexander could have formed, but his object in founding it could hardly be doubted. Alexandria was not intended to supersede Memphis as the capital of Egypt. It was intended to take the place of Tyre as the commercial center of Western Asia and the Eastern Mediterranean, and there was a good reason for diverting the lines of traffic from the Phoenician to the Egyptian coast, for it was naturally the policy of Alexander to transfer the trade of the world so far as might be into the hands of Greeks. But any new emporium rising on the ruins of Tyre, or Sidon, would have soon become predominantly Phoenician, owing to the Phoenician genius for trade, whereas on the Egyptian coast Greek traders would encounter no such rivalry. It was thus with a view to the commercial interests of his own race that Alexander founded the port of Egypt. In the official style of the Egyptian monarchy, the pharaohs were the sons of Amman, and as the successor of the pharaohs, Alexander assumed the same title. It was therefore necessary in order to regulate his position that an official assurance should be given by Amon himself that Alexander was his son. To obtain such a declaration and satisfy fully the formalities required by the priests, Alexander undertook a journey to the oracular sanctuary of Ammon in the oasis of Siwa and this motive is alone sufficient to explain the expedition. But it may well be that in Alexander's mind there was a vague notion that there was something divine about his own origin, something mystical in his mother's conception, and that, like Achilles, he was somewhat more than an ordinary man. Proceeding along the coast to Paratonian, he was there met by envoys who conveyed the submission of Cyrene, by this acquisition, the western frontier of the Macedonian Empire extended to the border of the Carthaginians' fear of influence. Alexander then struck across the desert to visit that Egyptian temple, which was most famous in the Greek world. The temple, as it was always called, of Zeus Ammon. There were no tracks to guide the travelers, for the south wind had plowed up the sand and obliterated the road marks, and stories were told in the camp of miraculous guidance, vouchsafed, to the favourite of the god. Ptolemy, son of Lagos, who was destined hereafter to rule over Egypt and Libya, recorded in his memoirs that two snakes moved in front of the troops and showed the way, while Aristobulus, another companion of the king, spoke of the guidance of two crows. A certain mystery enveloped this expedition. It is said that Alexander told no man what he asked the god or what the god replied save only that the answer pleased him. But it is certain that the priest had made some dispositions that Amon spoke and recognized him as his son. The very route by which Alexander returned to Memphis is uncertain. For the same two companions differ, Ptolemy stating that he fared direct across the desert, and Aristobulus that he returned by Paratonian. At Memphis he organized the government of Egypt, entrusting it to two native nomarchs, and appointing separate Greek governors for the adjoining districts of Arabia and for Libya. But the control of the finances was placed in the hands of a special minister, Cleomenes of Naukratis. Several military commanders were also appointed, and it would seem that Alexander instituted this divided command as a safeguard against the danger of a rebellion. For, geographically situated as Egypt was, an ambitious commander might have a fair prospect of holding the country against his lord and its recent history as a persian province had illustrated the difficulty of dealing with it if this be so alexander inaugurated a policy which was followed in later days and in another form by his roman successors section 9 battle of gaugamela and the conquest of babylonia the new lord of egypt and syria returned with the spring to tyre the whole coastland was now in his possession and he controlled the sea the time had come to advance into the heart of the Persian Empire. Having spent some months in the Phoenician city, busied with various matters of policy and administration, as well as with the plans for his next campaign, he set forth at the head of forty thousand infantry and seven thousand horse, and reached Thapsicus on the Euphrates at the beginning of August. The building of two bridges had already begun, but the Persian Mazaius who was stationed with troops on the further shore, had hindered their completion. When Alexander arrived, he withdrew. The bridges were finished, and the army passed over. The objective of Alexander was Babylon. At that time of year, it would have been mad to follow the direct route down the Euphrates, which was traversed by Cyrus and the Ten Thousand. Alexander chose the other road, across the north of Mesopotamia, and down the Tigris on its eastern bank. Throughout the Asiatic campaigns of Alexander we are struck by the perfect organization of his transports and supplies, but we are struck even more by the certainty of his movements through strange lands, as if he had a map of the country before him. His intelligence department must have been excellent, and though our records give us no intimations on the subject, it has been supposed with much plausibility that here the invader received help from the Jews, who, ever since the captivity, were scattered across Media and Babylonia. It is certain that Alexander had shown special favor to the race of Israel at the foundation of Egyptian Alexandria. He had invited a Jewish colony to settle there, enjoying the rights of citizens, and yet living in a separate quarter and keeping their own national customs. From some Persian scouts who were captured, it was certain that Darius, with a yet larger multitude than that which had succumbed at Issus, was on the other side of the river, determined to contest the passage. Alexander crossed the Tigris, not at Nineveh, the usual place of crossing, but higher up, at Bezabde. On the same night, the moon went into eclipse, and men anxiously sought in the phenomena a portent of the issue of the coming struggle for the lordship of Asia. Marching southward for some days, Alexander learned that Darius was encamped in a plain near Gagamela, on the river Bumodus. The numbers of the army were reported at one million foot and forty thousand horse. Having given his men four days rest, Alexander moved on by night, and halted on a hill looking down on the plain where the enemy lay prepared for battle. A council of war was held, and the question was discussed whether the attack should be made immediately. But Parmenio counseled a day's delay, for the purpose of reconnoitering fully the enemy's position, and discovering whether perchance covered pits had been dug or stakes laid in the ground. Parmenio's counsel was followed, and the troops pitched their camp in the order in which they were to fight. Alexander rode over the plain, and found that the Persians had cleared it of all bushes and obstacles which might impede the movements of their cavalry, or the effect of their scythed chariots. The following night was spent by the Persians under arms, for their camp was unfortified, and they feared a night attack and a night attack was recommended by Parmenio. But Alexander preferred to trust the issue to his own generalship and the superior discipline of his troops, and not to brave the hazards of a struggle in the dark. He said to Parmenio, I do not steal victory. And under the gallantry of this reply he concealed, in his usual manner, the prudence and policy of his resolve. A victory over the Persian host, won in the open field in the light of day, would have a far greater effect in establishing his prestige in Asia than an advantage stolen by night. The great king, according to his wont, was in the center of the Persian array, surrounded by his kinfolk and his Persian bodyguard. On either side of them were Greek mercenaries, Indian auxiliaries with a few elephants, and Carians whose ancestors had been settled in Upper Asia. The center was strengthened and deepened by a second line, composed of the Babylonian troops and the men from the shores of the Persian Gulf, and the Uxians, who dwelt east of Susa, and the Citacenes. On the left wing, the Caudusians, from the shore of the Caspian, and the men of Susa were nearest the center. Next came a mixed host of Persian horse and foot, and at the extreme left were the troops from the far east, from Arachosia and Bactria. This wing was covered by 1,000 Bactrian cavalry, one hundred Scyth armed chariots, and the Scythian cavalry from the desert districts of Lake Aral. On the right were the contingents of the Caucasian folks, the Hyrcanians and Tapurians from the southeastern shores of the Caspian, the Parthians, who were destined in the future to found a new oriental monarchy, the Sakai from the slopes of the Hindu Kush, and the Medes and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and northern Syria. Against this host, of which the cavalry alone is said to have been as numerous as all the infantry of the enemy, Alexander descended the hill in the morning. On his left wing, commanded as usual by Parmenio, were the cavalry of the Thessalian and Confederate Greeks. In the center, the six regiments of the Phalanx, and on the right, the Hypastus, and the eight squadrons of the companions, the royal squadron of Clytus being at the extreme right. Covering the right wing were some light troops, spear throwers, and archers. The line was far outflanked on both sides by the enemy, and the danger which Alexander had most to fear, as at the Battle of Issus, was of being attacked in rear or flank. Here, both wings were in peril. He sought to meet these contingencies by forming behind each wing a second line, which by facing round a quarter or half circle, could meet an attack on flank or rear. Behind the left wing were placed Thracian horse and foot, some Greek Confederate cavalry and Greek mercenary cavalry. Behind the right, the old Greek mercenaries under Cleander, the Macedonian archers, and some of the Agrianian spear throwers, the mounted pikemen, and the light Paeonian cavalry. And at the extreme right, to bear the brunt of a flank assault, the new Greek mercenaries under Menidas. As he advanced, Alexander and his right wing were opposite to the center of the enemy's line, and he was outflanked by the whole length of the enemy's left. He therefore bore obliquely to the right, and even when the Scythian horsemen riding forward came into contact with his own light troops, he continued to move his squadrons of heavy cavalry in the same direction. Darius saw with anxiety that this movement would soon bring the Macedonian right outside the ground which he had carefully leveled and prepared for the actions of his Scyth chariots. And, as he had no small part of his hopes in the deadly effect of these chariots, he commanded the Scythian and Bactrian cavalry to ride round, and deliver a flank charge, in order to hinder any further advance towards the right. The charge was met by the new mercenaries of menidas But they were too few. They were driven back, until the Paeonians and the old mercenaries were bidden to come to their support. Then the barbarians gave way, but only in a short while, reinforced by more troops, they returned to the charge. The battle raged, and it was well if the Macedonians, far outnumbered, could hold their ground. Meanwhile, Darius had loosed his scythed cars to whirl destruction into the ranks of the companions and the Hypaspists. But the archers and the Agrian spear-throwers received them with showers of spears and arrows, some of these active hillmen seized the reins of the horses and pulled the drivers from their seats, while the Hypaspists, swift and undismayed, opened their ranks, and the terrible chariots rattled harmless down the intervals. The whole Persian line was now advancing to attack, and Alexander was waiting for the moment to deliver his cavalry charge. He had to send his mounted pikemen to the help of the light cavalry, who were being hard-pressed on the right by the Scythians and Bactrians and, as a countercheck to this reinforcement, squadrons of Persian cavalry were dispatched to the assistance of their fellows. By the withdrawal of these squadrons a gap was caused, in the left wing, and into this gap Alexander plunged at the head of his cavalry column, and split the line in two. Thus the left side of the enemy's center was exposed, and, turning obliquely, Alexander charged into its ranks. Meanwhile the bristling phalanx was moving forward, and was soon engaged in close combat with another part of the Persian center. The storm of battle burst, with wildest fury, round the spot, where the Persian king was trembling, and what befell at Issus befell again at Galgamela. The great king turned his chariot and fled. His Persians fled with him, and swept along in their flight the troops who had been posted in the rear. Thus the Persian center and the neighboring part of the left wing were cut down, or routed by the phalanx the Hypastus, and the companions, and in the meantime the severe struggle of the light cavalry on the uttermost left had also ended in victory for the Macedonians. The regiments of the Phalanx in their rapid advance had failed to keep abreast, and it would seem that when the regiment of Craterus on the extreme left was already far forward in the thick of the fight, the regiment commanded by Simeus, second from the left, was considerably in the rear. From his position Simeus saw that the Thessalian cavalry on the left wing were pressed hard by their adversaries, and he halted his regiment, in order apparently to make a movement to assist them. But the Indian and Persian cavalry of the hostile center rushed through the gap in the phalanx, and rode straight onward to the Macedonian camp, unhindered by the rear line of the left wing who did not expect an enemy on that side. The captives in the camp burst out and helped their friends to murder the Thracians, who had been sent to guard it. The Greek mercenaries and Thracians of the rear line soon perceived what had happened. They turned round and attacked the plunderers in the rear and overcame them. Meanwhile, Parmenio was hard bestead. The Mesopotamians and the Syrians on the extreme Persian right had attacked his cavalry in the flank or rear. Parmenio sped a messenger to Alexander, entreating aid, and Alexander desisted from the pursuit of his fleeing rival to restore the battle on his left wing. Riding back with his companions, he encountered a large body of cavalry, Persians, Parthians, and Indians in full retreat, but in orderly array. A desperate conflict ensued, perhaps the most fearful in the whole battle, the Persians fighting not for victory, but for life. Sixty of the companions fell, but Alexander was again victorious, and rode on to the help of Parmenio. But Parmenio no longer needed his help. Not the least achievement of this day of great deeds was the brilliant fighting of the Thessalian cavalry, who not only sustained the battle against the odds which had wrung from Parmenio the cry for aid, but in the end routed their foemen before Alexander could reach the spot. The battle was won, and the fate of the Persian empire was decided. Alexander did not tarry on the field. He lost not a moment in resuming the chase which he had abandoned, and, riding eastward throughout the night on the tracks of the Persian king, he reached Arbella on the morrow. It befell now as it had befallen after Issus. He did not take the king, but found at Arbella his chariot, his shield, and his bow. Darius fled into the highlands of Media, and Ariel with a host of the routed army, hastened southward to Persia. Alexander did not follow either king or satrap, but pursued his way to Babylon. It might have been expected, and Alexander seems to have expected, that the men of Babylon, entrusting in their mighty walls, would have offered to the victor of Gaugamela the same defiance which the men of Tyre offered to the victor of Issus. He was disappointed. When he approached the city with his army arrayed for action, the gates opened, and the Babylonians streamed out, led by their priests and their chief men. The satrap, Mesaius, who had fought bravely in the recent battle, surrendered the city and citadel. In Babylonia, Alexander followed the same policy which he had already followed into Egypt. He appeared as the protector of the national religions which had been depressed and slighted by the fire worshippers. He rebuilt the Babylonian temples which had been destroyed, and above all, he commanded the restoration of the marvelous temple of Bel, standing on its eight towers on which the rage of Xerxes had vented itself when he had returned from the rout of Salamis, the Persian Mesaius, who was retained in his post as satrap of Babylonia. End of chapter 17, sections 8 and 9.